Jasper on the main stair. Outside, our Sook tossed both weapons into the water and watched them sink rapidly out of view. They came screaming from inside and muffled shouts. He turned and began to run. Before he reached the end of the quay, he heard footsteps behind him. Then something struck him on the back, and he fell face first upon the ground. He gave a grunt of pain, his ribs were still very tender, and felt his hands being cuffed roughly behind him. He did not protest as he was hoisted to his feet, marched to the horse post, and shoved against it. His captor then cuffed him with a second pair of handcuffs to the iron ring, where he remained until the policeman's wagon arrived to take him to jail. Ah, Sook could not make head or tail of the questions that were put to him in English, and at length his interrogators despaired of him. He was not afforded the courtesy of a translator, and when he said the name Carver, the policemen only shook their heads. He was placed in cramped custody with five other men. In due course the case was heard and judged to warrant a trial, which was scheduled to take place some six weeks later. By this time the Palmerston must have long since departed. Carver, in all likelihood, was gone for good. Ah, Sook passed the next six weeks in a state of great anxiety and dejection, and awoke on the morning of his trial as if upon the day of his very execution. How could he hope to defend himself? He would be convicted and hanged before the month was out. The case was heard in English, and Asuk from the dock understood virtually none of it. He was surprised when, after several hours of speeches and swearings in, Francis Carver was brought to the stand in handcuffs. Asuk wondered why this witness was the only one to have been restrained. He stood up as Carver approached the stand and called out to him in Cantonese. Their gaze met, and in the sudden stillness, Asuk, speaking calmly and distinctly, promised to avenge his father's death. Carver, to his dishonor, was the first to look away. It was only much later that Ah Sook learnt the nature of what transpired during the trial. The name of the man he was accused of having murdered, as he later discovered, was Jeremy Shepherd, and the buck-toothed woman who had nursed Ah Sook back to health was his wife, Margaret. The copper-haired woman was Lydia Greenway, she was the proprietrix of the Darling Harbour brothel, which was known as the White Horse Saloon. At the time of his trial, Asuk knew no names at all. It was not until the morning after his acquittal that he found a copy of the Sydney Herald and was able to pay a Cantonese trader to translate the account given in the courthouse pages, which, owing to its sensational nature, ran over three columns, nearly filling an entire page. The case of the prosecutor, according to the Sydney Herald, rested upon three points. Firstly, that Asuk had a very good reason to bear a grudge against Jeremy Shepherd, given that the latter had beaten him senseless the week before. Secondly, that Asuk had been apprehended fleeing the White Horse Saloon in the moments after the shot was fired, which naturally made him the most likely suspect. And thirdly, that Chinese men in general could not be trusted and indeed bore an inherent malice against all white men. The defence, in the face of these charges, was lackadaisical. The lawyer reasoned that it was unlikely that Arsuk, being but a fraction of Shepherd's height and weight, could have got close enough to place the muzzle of the pistol against the other man's temple. 
For this reason, the possibility of suicide ought not to be ruled out. When the prosecutor interjected to assert that the act of suicide was, by the testimony of his friends, vehemently against Jeremy Shepherd's nature, the defence ventured the opinion that no man on earth was wholly incapable of suicide, a surmise that received a sharp reprimand from the judge. Begging the judge's pardon, the lawyer concluded his argument by suggesting, as a kind of general summation, that perhaps Sukyong Sheng had only fled the white horse in alarm. A shot had just been fired, after all. When he sat down, the prosecutor made no effort to hide his smirk, and the judge sighed very audibly. At last, the prosecutor called for the testimony of Margaret Shepherd, Jeremy Shepherd's widow, and it was here that the trial took a startling turn. Upon the stand, Margaret Shepherd flatly refused to corroborate with the prosecutor's line of questioning. She insisted that Sukyong Sheng had not murdered her husband. She knew this to be true for a very simple reason. She had witnessed his suicide herself. This startling confession gave rise to such an uproar in the court that the judge was obliged to call for order. Ah Suk, to whom these events would only be translated long after the fact, never dreamt that the woman was risking her own safety in order to save his life. When Margaret Shepherd's questioning was allowed to continue, the prosecutor inquired as to why she had hitherto concealed this very vital information, to which Margaret Shepherd replied that she had lived in great fear of her husband, for he abused her daily, as more than one witness could attest. Her spirit was all but broken. She had only just mustered the courage to speak of the incident aloud. After this poignant testimony, the trial dissolved. The judge had no choice but to acquit Asuk of the crime of murder and to release him. Jeremy Shepherd, it was decreed, had committed suicide, may God rest his soul, though that prospect was, theologically speaking, very unlikely. Asuk's first action upon his release from jail was to seek news of Francis Carver. He learned to his surprise that in fact the Palmerston had been apprehended in the Sydney Harbour some weeks ago, following a routine search. Francis Carver had been found in breach of the law on charges of smuggling, breach of customs, and evasion of duty. According to the report given to the Maritime Police, there were sixteen young women from Guangzhou in the ship's hold, all of them severely malnourished and frightened in the extreme. The Palmerston had been seized, the women had been sent back to China, Carver had been remanded in jail, and Carver's relationship with Dent and Co. had been formally dissolved. He had been sentenced to ten years of penal servitude at the penitentiary upon Cockatoo Island, effective instant. There was nothing to do but wait for Carver's sentence to elapse. Asuk sailed to Victoria and began to dig the ground. He acquired some facility in English, apprenticed himself to various trades, and dreamed with increasing lucidity of avenging his father's murder by taking Carver's life. In July 1864, he sent a written inquiry to Cockatoo Island, requesting to know where Carver had gone upon his liberation. He received an answer three months later, informing him that Carver had sailed to Dunedin, New Zealand, upon the steamer Sparta. Asuk bought a ticket there also, and in Dunedin the trail suddenly went cold. He searched and searched, and found nothing. At last, defeated, Asuk gave up the case as lost.
He bought a miner's right and a one-way ticket.